Compliance Clarified, a podcast by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence. Hello and a very warm welcome to Season 4, Episode 2 of Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence's Compliance Clarified podcast. My name is Susanna Hammond and I'm Senior Regulatory Intelligence Expert here at TRRI. Now, in the first episode of the new series, we considered 10 things that compliance officers need to consider in the coming year. And in this second episode of Series 4, we're looking at the five key risks for financial services firms in 2022. And to chat about it all, I'm delighted to say that again, I am joined by Mike Cowan. Hi, Susanna. How are you? I'm doing very well, thank you. Uh, Now, at the start of 2022... Financial institutions need to consider the changes they might need to make permanent after their mostly, largely successful response to the COVID-19 pandemic. And a combination of flexibility, deployment of technology and, in the case of banks, balance sheets which would be substantially bolstered following the financial crisis. All of those things helped meet the unprecedented challenges of early 2020. Now, it is likely that for many firms, work is already underway to reassess their strategic approach, together with the associated policies, procedures and control infrastructure. And one of the things firms do need to consider is that the pandemic has not been the only driver of change. We've also seen shifting geopolitics, the emerging of climate risk as a significant concern for financial services firms, the sheer speed of innovation in cryptos, and the need to deliver consistently good customer outcomes. All of those are current boardroom considerations over and above anything the pandemic threw at us. Now, those deliberations need to be informed by a highly skilled, well-resourced, in-house, I emphasise the in-house, risk and compliance function. And let's be clear, skilled in-house resources will give firms the very best chance of navigating future uncertainty, and allowing firms and their senior managers to be, and be seen to be, compliant with all the rules, requirements and expectations. Now, five key risks for firms. The specific risks being run by firms are obviously institutional firm specific, but there are some high level risks applicable to all firms, irrespective of geography or sector. So let's get into the five key risks. Mike, let's kick off with data governance. Yeah, and I think um, I want to look at data in two way, two ways, really. I think I want to ha- to chat around uh, the specific data risks that firms are um, uh, vulnerable to, but also look at this thing that we're calling data governance, which is really the way firms can um, apply controls to minimise their risks that these that these risks um, um, crystallising. And I think governance is something that's going to run through the whole of this five risks chat. I think every pretty pretty much every area we're going to chat about has a governance angle, which is which is which is is great. So as for data, well, it's it isn't a new issue, uh, but one that seems to have grown in importance in the last few years. And I guess that's because you know greater use of automated solutions to drive business decisions, artificial intelligence, machine learning and more sophisticated fintech solutions and and all of these applications need data in, in, you know in which to operate and then you add to this uh, the uh, the general use of data in everyday lives 
Um, and I and I pick up on, picked up on your point that you put in in the in the report, Susanna, about that it's estimated that every person online produced one point seven megabytes of of data every second in twenty twenty. Now that's over one point one billion gigabytes of daily data, and that was um, uh, and in twenty twenty one, twice as much as that was produced as in twenty nineteen. And the predictions in the next five years uh, is it only increased exponentially. So the scale and the amount of data that firms are having to deal with is significant, to put it mildly. I mean, as uh, Timothy Lane, the deputy governor of the Bank of Canada, said, um, um, it has been said that the in the digital economy, data is the new oil. The oil in which I guess he means that financial services firms work upon. Therefore, firms need to embrace the fact that data is a strategic asset and from there build a business-wide approach to, to data management. Um, I believe um, in our uh, FinTech, RegTech and the Role of Compliance report, we called it the strategic asset for a digital age. And I think that's pretty, you know, I think that's pretty, that's pretty a sound uh, statement, because this may, and because it's the digital asset, uh, the digital asset, uh, the strategic asset, that means recognizing data as a risk to your organization and exploring what those risks might be. So for me, the, the main areas underneath data, data risk are strategic, you know, recognizing it as a strategic asset, as we've said. Collection, you know, where do you obtain the data from? In what format? Format, uh, from which sources? In um, um, how timely? How frequently? How accurate is that data? Storage, the storage risk, whether that be automatic or manual. How are firms storing that data? Does that particular uh, mechanism put the firm in greater risk? Security, you know, preventing unauthorized access to that data. Retrieval, presenting the data in an accurate and timely manner. And then finally, and the one that, 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 that historically people used to forget was the destruction of data. Once you've used the data and it becomes obsolete or not unnecessary for your business purposes, that data has to be destroyed. But, but, but it has to be destroyed, destroyed in the right way, so not as to present further risks to uh, the organisation. And to manage these risks, firms need to operate appropriate governance structures. Now, I'm not going to, uh, to uh, sit here today and go through every facet of an effective data governance structure. Uh, but let's have a look at some of the more weaker areas, perhaps, historically. So, board involvement. Um, there, have, there may have been a tendency historically for boards to underestimate the need to pay sufficient attention to data matters. I mean, I think we've said this before on these podcasts, that data management was seen more as a, the preparation of the company archive rather than the strategic asset that it's becoming more and more. And with the increased shift towards strategy, then boards need to put increased focus on, on data matters including the responsibility for appropriate governance committees and more effective monitoring and reporting of how data is used um, and managed. I think um, ownership, um, ownership of the risks here I'm talking about. So all risk managers will tell you that effective risk man for, for effective risk management to happen, 
risks need to be owned by a business owner. This is true of data, but, but probably on two levels. Yes, there should be someone allocated across the organization to coordinate data policy and procedure and field things like subject access requests. Uh, in fact, in Europe, I believe the, the uh, GDPR, um, the data protection regulations, mandate that somebody is responsible for those type of things. Um, this person needs to be suitably uh, senior um, in order for it to have influence at board and senior management level to influence company strategy and policy where data um, risks are prevalent and where data needs managing greatest. But there is also a need for data to be part of every employee's job description and, and a structure needs to be put in place to educate and inform employees of what their responsibilities are. So ownership at two levels for me is key. Yes, significant ownership of the risks, but also greater awareness by all in the organization to, um, um, to be able to manage that data properly. And I've got two more points, which is the first one is around key controls. Now, many organizations will already have identified key controls within their organizations. You know, controls that, 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 that mitigate significant risks. Um, and these controls are generally tested on a regular basis to make sure that they operate effectively. Now, data is no different here. Whether it is the, uh, the changing of passwords or compliance with security classifications, whatever the data control or the key data control that the organization sees within the organization, they need to be identified and tested on a regular basis to make sure that they operate correctly and where they don't, actions put in place to correct that, um, the, 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 um, the lack of control. The next point is third party management. So in this um, global uh, world that we live in and with the, um, the use of greater uh, number of outsource providers, especially in the IT field, um, you know, managing risks within the organization is not um, the only um, 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 angle that risk managers um, 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 come up against here. They must manage their risks and their data risks within the third parties that, that supply their, their firm. And uh, governance arrangements must include this, this, this link to, the th to, to third parties. And, must, and, and so uh, firms must be sure that data is being managed in the third parties in the same way and to the same standards that they manage their data internally. In fact, if you extrapolate this point um, of third-party management, there is a big Im involvement around data in operational resilience matters and how the firm manages significant business disruption. And I think it, the, 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 the need to view data in an operational resilience um, lens is is very important also. Thank you, Mike. And yes, I'm, I'm going to pick up on the operational resilience point on, on several levels. Um, it's maybe stating the entirely obvious, actually, that the pandemic perhaps was the ultimate test of firms' operational resilience. Now, now before I go any further, I'm going to just give a bit of a definition of what I'm talking about with regard to operational resilience. 
and it can be defined as the ability to deliver critical operations throughout disruption. And that ability enables firms to identify and protect themselves from threats and potential failures, and then respond and adapt to, as well as recover and learn from, disruptive events to minimise their impact on the delivery of critical operations. Now, one of the things that has come up um, in terms of operational resilience with regard to the pandemic in particular is that the changes that were put in place after the financial crisis, and I'm referring particularly here to the bolstering of bank balance sheets, which I referred to in my introduction, those were seen to have worked in terms of policy measures. In other words, financial services firms, banks in particular, were seen to be able to minimise and help firms, other firms through the pandemic, rather than amplifying the issues of the pandemic. In other words, they were able, by and large, to continue their delivery of critical operations. So operational resilience isn't just this great big challenge and everybody gets it wrong. It's very much a, an area where policy intervention at the highest levels have been shown to work in terms certainly of financial services firms, but it is becoming a discipline in its own right. And that's what firms really need to think about in 2022. Now, we are considering operational resilience and for firms really do need to just assume the unexpected will happen. I mean, we all have that example with regard to the pandemic. Of course, disruptions will occur. And you need to take account of that in your overall risk appetite and you have a tolerance for the disruption. And the tolerance for disruption will be the level of disruption from any type of operational risk you can think of that the firm is willing to accept given a range of severe but plausible scenarios. Now, two years ago, pre-pandemic, I think we all would have had a slightly different list. But now we have absolute case in point, global pandemics can hit, supply chains can fall apart, travel can stop. All of those things will have an impact and have, have, an, have had an impact on firms. So, and we're back to governance again now as well, which will really will be a thread through all of this. Firms need to consider the governance around all of this. And for that, this sort of um, assessment and strategic approach Whilst the nuts and bolts of it won't be done at the boardroom table, the strategic approach needs to be understood, signed off and indeed directed from the boardroom. So operational risk management, so that's the management of operational risk, needs to identify external threats. You could certainly class the pandemic as one of those. Internal threats, potential failures in people, in processes, in systems on a continuing basis. You need to have the ability to promptly assess any vulnerabilities you've got in critical operations, and that may well include third-party operations or outsourced operations, as Mike's mentioned. And then the firm needs to have the capacity and capability to manage the resulting risks in accordance with its strategic approach to operational resilience. Inherent in all of that is a firm's ability to map all of the interconnections and interdependencies. And in any kind of business of any size, any complexity, I really wouldn't underestimate the challenges in not only mapping, but keeping that map up to date. 
So you do need to have resources that are pretty much assigned to that full time, for want of a better word. Inherent in that, again, the third party dependencies, you've got incident management, IT, cyber issues. I mean, there is a long shopping list. And to pick up also on what Mike mentioned about data governance, I would weave into that very specifically the concentration risks now becoming much clearer in cloud. Large numbers of financial services firms have very successfully outsourced big chunks of their IT processing capacity and capability to the cloud. Brilliant. However, there's only about three or four big cloud providers and that is beginning to worry policymakers in terms of concentration risk. Equally, firms need to take account of that concentration risk in their own operational risk management approach and be prepared to have backup plans to what actually might be your backup plan in the cloud. Yeah, I think the uh, I think you're right with the, with the cloud point there, um, um, Susanna. Um, 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 it's an area that, as you said, that policymakers are becoming more aware of, and this is going to be a, an area of of more work in 2022, and, and and an area that firms need to to keep an eye on because uh, more and more regulators will be issuing um, greater um, uh, greater guidance, greater direction on how firms should be dealing with with this concentration risk of of supplies within the cloud, and that is something that firms may have to to react to. Um, um, quite significantly, especially if, if it requires um, changing supply, for example. So, um, completely un- un- underline what you say about the the, the use of the uh, the cloud there. Um, go on, sorry. No, I was going to say um, we're back to the governance. You have to have the governance mm. in place, overseeing this, considering it. The last thing you want is concentration risk in the cloud, or indeed any other operational risk, to come as a horrible surprise. Exactly. You've got to try exactly. and be on the front foot as much as possible with all of this. Exactly. In, in fact, you know, there's been some debate within risk management circles. I'm just moving away from the cloud for a second, but um, it's related um, in that, you know, operational risk is a discipline within risk management. Operational resilience is becoming a discipline. Uh, and so what's the difference? I mean, I think there is a difference. But as you quite rightly highlighted um, 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 when you were speaking, you know, there, there, there is a, a large overlap between the two. And in fact, operational resilience is becoming a sort of mirror of the firm, if you like. I mean, a very close mirror. I mean, it's just, it, operational resilience is becoming more, more and more like business as usual in, in, in some areas. But, uh, but um, um, it, it is, it is um, uh, I suppose my point is that operational risk and operational resilience are very close, covering the same areas um, and but do look at the organization in slightly different ways um, and um, and that difference um, shouldn't be um, sh- and the risk of duplication here of for risk managers um, is significant. Yes, and that duplication you work with and by communicating and again with with the governance with your overall approach to operational risk. and the other thing I think just to finish on perhaps on this is, the regulators are incredibly interested in this. I mean, they have the pandemic as the perfect example as how operational resilience risks can crystallise. So they are all pretty much to a regulator doing post-pandemic reviews, for instance. And part of that is operational risk. So moving on to yet more governance, this really is the thread. Um, uh, ESG, the G, 
is governance. So, Mike, why is the G in ESG the most important element of it? Well, the silent G, um, um, which I'll come on to in a minute. But, um, yeah, environmental, social, governance, ESG. Um, this covers a wide uh, sweep of evolving risks uh, and and requires um, you know you know significant future action by firms. Um, I suppose the first thing to say is that climate risk is unlike any other financial risks. It's 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 got a uniqueness and a complexity, and the long term nature of the risks make quantifying the threat one of the biggest hurdles here. So why is G silent? Um, I mean, what we're saying is that the, is the environmental and social elements of ESG are important, absolutely. But without the appropriate corporate governance, financial services firms will simply not be able to deliver on the challenges that the, 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 the E and the S are, are, are presenting. And robust risk management lies at the heart of good governance in, um, um, in, 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 in all areas, but in particular uh, with regards to the ESG issues. Um, board risk committees should, sh uh, so there should be, so firms need to take some, some practical action, I guess, around their risk management frameworks, their, their risk management uh, approaches. So board risk committees should have their terms of reference amended to cover e e ESG related issues. Uh, and skill sets within risk departments should be viewed um, to ensure appropriate levels of knowledge and experience on ESG-related matters. I, I think we're going to come. We'll, we will undoubtedly discuss more about skill sets um, um, in, in the coming minutes. Um, owners of ESG risks will have to be designated. I mean, I spoke about that, this in the data section. You know, good risk management comes down to allocating ownership for particular risks within within a firm. Um, a firm should include ESG in its risk appetite assessment, you know, um, um, and employ key risk indicators and guardrails that allow the board to assess the compliance with the firm's uh, risk appetite. Uh, within risk taxonomies, where firms are used to traditional things like credit and market and uh, financial and operational risk, well, uh, ESG risks form a, a, a new uh, pillar for me. Um, it's a separate umbrella, a category uh, to sit alongside the, tra the, tra the traditional uh, taxonomy inclusions from a risk management perspective. So what are some of the risks that, that firms face in this space? Well, well, from a governance perspective, there is climate-related disclosures. Um, a particular deliverable is the sustainable uh, sustainability-related disclosure standards, which were agreed well, at least in part, at COP26. And for firms meeting the, the proposed reporting requirements will involve, you know, the collection, collation, reproduction, reporting of millions of data points. Um, and, you know, there are regulations out there at the moment that are either in place. I mean, I think Europe has has taken a slight lead in this uh, with, with things like the, the SF, um, um, uh, the Sustainable Finance Regulation, um and uh and other um disclosure requirements from from regulators the us are starting to pick up the pace on this but in asia and uh, australasia you know there are um significant climate related disclosures which firms have to get their head around and the practicalities of uh, gathering those inf that that information and the governance around that needs to needs to be thought through 
There are diversity issues. Now, diversity, I mean, perhaps if you look at the, the ESG acronym, it's maybe an S, it maybe it's a social element. But what I'm talking about here, I suppose, is diversity in the boardroom. You know, not necessarily in the whole firm and the uh, and and the 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 process is surrounded uh, with uh, the cohort of employees uh, that we're talking about here, but actually in the boardroom and getting the right diverse balance within the within the boardroom is also becoming a uh, becoming more and more of a, a of an issue with firms. Um, financial crime. So the the low risk, high reward nature of financial crime makes for a lucrative and safe source of revenue for criminals. And this is partly due to regulatory and legal enforcement not always being consistent internationally. And, um, and um, you know, it, 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 it can encourage the likes of money laundering and other types of fraudulent behaviour uh, within the ESG space. I mean, I suppose you can add to this the the the, the practice of greenwashing, the uh, where firms claim to have a a um, a ESG, a green, a climate related um, um, product or service or principle, but actually they don't. It's not substantiated, and so this is an, another area where firms, um, 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 uh, where decent governance around firms will will eradicate that sort of behavior. And then finally, if, uh, uh, f, um, in the ESG space, the, the point I'm gonna make here is around skills. I mean, there is an international sh shortage of ESG skills and experience. And firms should not underestimate the complexity of the governance, which will be needed to meet the developing criteria and expectations. But I guess to get the required skills um, into organizations, does come at a cost and um, the remuneration packages um, will have to be um, um, able to be able to entice the right people um, with the right skill sets at the right time. Yes, thank you. And, and I'm going to pick up on remuneration, which, do you know, all other things being equal, remuneration and the strategic approach to it and the need for good bonus design really should be in the rearview mirror by now. Um, I'm going to reference the financial crisis again, which is what, 12, 13 years ago now. Um, and it was the very first thing that the newly formed Financial Stability Board, for those of you of a certain vintage will know, remember it is the Financial Stability Forum before that. The very first thing they did in the wake of the financial crisis was to implement supranational compensation standards and the driver for that was to have better risk aware behaviors. Now that those standards and the um, associated guidelines came out in September 2009 and the back end of 2021, the Financial Stability Board reviewed again the implementation and practical impact of those reforms. And yes, those reforms have evolved to a certain extent over that decade and more, but at their heart, they have remained very clear and relatively simple and the same. Now, the seventh progress report covered the practices of the largest financial institutions in banking, insurance and asset management. And the result was highlighted as an uneven progress, even now, towards implementing the principles and the standards. 
Um, those of you in banks can be slightly more uh, relaxed because the banks were seen to be relatively more advanced than insurance and asset management firms. And it has become a really central issue on so many levels. And the report, it also covered regulatory and supervisory development, the governance mechanisms for compensation which firms deploy, the effective use of metrics, criteria, compensation tools, legal and regulatory challenges to the effective use of compensation tools. And these sorts of reports are well worth investing time in reading and then actually using as a benchmark. And firms need to benchmark their approach to compensation. Um, it is going to become, a, it is, remains a key regulatory issue and firms really do need to stay up to date with what is beginning to be emerging good and better in practice on all of this. Um, and if you need a really clear example of bonus practices in practice, it, there's an excellent one from 2020. And, and in 2020, it was reported that Goldman's uh, planned to claw back around 171 million from current and former executives, a part of the one MDB fallout. And that included a 31 million cut to the compensation of chief executive, that it was a chap called David Solomon, and two of his deputies. And it was also seeking 76 million from three former employees who'd been directly implicated in the scandal. Now, bonus clawback, malice, however you want to badge it, those sorts of examples show that it can and will work in practice. But again, one of the issues is you need your bonus design up front, along with your remuneration compensation approaches, to have a very risk aware stance and promote a sound culture and positive behavior. Now, yes, there's an extra. Uh, sorry. Oh, sorry, Mike, I'll, I'll just going to talk about the UK and then I'll. I'll, I'll pass over. Um, no, no, perfectly fine. Um, for those of you in the UK, there's an extra twist in this tale. I'm sure you will all be familiar with the new FCA proposals about the new consumer duty. And that talks about the need for a cultural reset. And it introduces a new principle. I mean, we've had 11 principles for a rather long time now, but we now have principle 12, which requires firms to act to deliver good outcomes for retail customers. Now, you combine cultural reset, fundamental shift of requirement for how firms approach things, and a key part of good outcomes will include the approach, the approach to remuneration and bonuses. So for those of you in the UK, this has taken a whole uh, additional level of importance, and I would bear remuneration approaches in mind when you do respond to the consumer duty um, consultation. Now, that's currently out for consultation, closes in the middle of February. Policy statement is due end of July. And at the moment, those new requirements will come into place um, April next year. So April 2023. And sorry, Mike, I interrupted you totally then. Do go on. No, no. Well, I interrupted you. So apologies from me. Um, but all I was going to say was, uh, was, uh, was uh, well, first of all, to underline a couple of the points that you made, because I think you're right. I think remuneration is one of the first signs of poor uh, conduct risk culture. And, uh, and we're, back, we're sort of back to the G again. We're sort of back to governance because, um, because a lot of the, uh, the ways to get remuneration right 
albeit you know difficult and albeit maybe it hasn't really been got right in in the last few years um is is to to have in place um governance arrangements and there are good governance arrangements you can put in place so you mentioned your um, benchmarking of remuneration approaches well that should morph itself into some form of remuneration policy within the firm um remuneration should be overseen by a remuneration committee that's chaired by a a non-executive director of the board uh, reporting into the board. Um, and in fact, in, 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 in some organisations, I think that's the chairman that, that oversees the, 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 the remuneration committee. Um, and then the uh, and then I suppose it's the difficult bit because you can put all, all in place all these great um, practical measures, but then when you actually come to dishing out the money, um, it's do you get it right? And, do, and um, can you... Um, mitigate all the risks that uh, comes with 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 remuneration packages, and so the likes of the exec and the finance departments and the HR department monitoring and 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 allocating you know uh, monies appropriately you know it does that work and that this is where it this is where it gets a bit messy because policies are great but they're very high level and if the, if there's a certain line that 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 the executive wish to take. Then that's maybe the line they take on on remuneration, and I would weave back into that also personal accountability. If you are seen as a senior executive to have deliberately, and I use that word advisedly, built a compensation remuneration bonus approach culture that drives risky behaviour or encourages risky behaviour, I would suggest you're on very sticky ground right now. Um, regulators around the world have introduced um, accountability regimes, governance regimes. They're proliferating. Part of what senior executives do is set the tone from the top. And part of that tone is a risk-aware culture that is reinforced by the approach to compensation. So it is absolutely on the boardroom table. And moving on to the fifth of five... Um, and this, to be fair, we could have had a podcast on each of the five topics we've spoken about, but this one, I think, in particular, perhaps. And so back to you, Mike, with regard to enabling technology and technologies. Yeah, technology risk. We can't ignore this one, unfortunately. But as you say, this is a a massive area which, which has many different tentacles delving into many different facets of both operational and technological risks. But nevertheless, you know, the pandemic, you know, it's estimated that, that, that to have accelerated the digital transformation by as much as, as three years, you know, more and more people using automated solutions to, to deal with um, um, procedures and operations that previously uh, were either done manually or very differently from how they had to be operated under the, uh, in the pandemic. Um, digital transformation is made possible by enabling technologies, which includes, and I've mentioned some of these, so application programming interfaces, big data analytics and artificial intelligence, biometrics, cloud computing we've chatted about, uh, and distributed ledger technology. So like I said, you know, the, 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 you know, the, 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 the enabling technology risk um, um, goes into many, many different areas of, of, uh, of financial services life. Um, firms and their boards need to be able to ensure the safe adoption of any new technology. 
so that benefits can be reaped. And there are major benefits from using technology. We all know that. But in the same way, the risks need to be managed appropriately. And um, um, and the risks need to be uh, need to be managed so that it does not put the firm at risk. So among the technology risks that firms um, need to consider, and by and I'm not saying this is uh, this is um, comprehensive, but uh, um, the ones the main ones that I think I would pull out are strategic risk. You know, technology needs to be seen as part of the firm's um, uh, uh, strategy. It needs to, to be integral with what the firm is doing, and um, it need, the risks need to be looked at from a strategic perspective. Um, cyber risk, um, uh, big uh, big ticket area. Um, more and more firms being uh, attacked um, um, through the uh, um, through the, uh, the, the, the the cyber route, um, and uh, firms need to to consider their cyber risks. Uh, fully and comprehensively, uh, it's a risk that I know keeps a lot of of, of board directors are, are, are awake at night, um, and it's a risk that um, um, is is only as good as I suppose the, the weakest link in the chain. But it's finding that weakest link um, um, within the organisation and um, mitigating the risk that it poses. IT resiliency. So we've spoken about operational resilience, um, and IT resilience is a large part of that. More and more firms relying on their IT to to, to undertake their uh, business as usual. Um, that needs to be reflected in operational resilience plans and the use of IT going forward. And I suppose linked to that, another and another and another um, risk, but in an IT context is uh, the third party outsourcing um, of um, various operations within the firm and the IT risks that that pr present to the firm. Uh, technology operational risk, this is, this is more about the coverage of, of the failure of, I of hardware and software um, uh, within the organization and the ability of the firm to manage that, to manage a failure, or even the 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 the, the upgrading of software so that um, things work most efficiently. Um, there's there are so many firms out there that are dependent on legacy systems, which are preventing them um, progressing their strategies because their legacy systems can't um, well pose too too great a risk to developing them. Um, to their strategies and um, uh, and that needs to be taken on board and as a final thing I've, I've thrown in project management again projects are great a great way of organizing uh, new new uh, new developments um, of, of coordinating the way the firm moves forward but project management risk um, is significant the risks of projects failing are not only costly um, but, uh, uh, but but can be detrimental in other ways to firms so a plethora of IT risks, and I'm sure um, 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 IT risk managers uh, will come up with a with a, with a, with, a, with a load of other with, with a load of others. So there's a need to consider governance, the G word again, uh, around your, your around your IT, um, um, uh, your approach to your IT, your IT framework. Um, now there are various uh, good practice methodologies out there. Um, I've just selected COBIT um, uh, as one, which provides a methodology for firms to follow when governing.
opening um, um, their IT um, uh, arrangements. And the COBIT um, uh, framework has five points. Uh, I mean, at its top has five points. So things like meeting the stakeholder needs, covering the enterprise end-to-end, -end, applying a single integrated framework, enabling holistic, uh, a holistic approach, and separating governance from management are all of the five key principles that COBIT advocates in its IT um, governance um, uh, framework. And this builds on seven enablers. And these several ena enablers are actually quite um, uh, are very similar to the categories in, in firms' risk um, uh, operational risk taxonomies. So the seven enablers to that are people, policies, and frameworks, uh, uh, processes, organizational structures, the culture and ethics and behavior of the organization, the information that's that's passed through these IT systems, the services, infrastructure and applications, and then the people, skills and competencies. All of those seven areas are pretty much uh, are risk areas within themselves, I would suggest, but are part of the COVID IT governance framework. Now, I mentioned there the seventh one being people, skills, and competencies. Um, and just a, just a final point on this, because we mentioned skills uh, previously in other contexts. But from a, a technological point of view, um, it is now a prerequisite for board members and senior managers to have sufficient techno technological knowledge to be able to challenge and oversee firms' technological strategic direction. Um, and, you know, firms need to be able to recruit and retain people with this expertise to be able to satisfy to be able to ch challenge business decisions um, within the te within the IT te uh, technology space. Um, and I think that's all I wanted to say on technological uh, on uh, technological risks. Um, it's a massive area. Um, it is absolutely ripe for a top five, um, and firms need to manage technology risk appropriately. Uh, they do indeed, and, and it's not an optional extra, and it totally needs to be a core competency for firms. The one thing I would perhaps weave into all of that is inherent in the strategy setting at the boardroom table is the need to build in the capacity and capability to trust the output of any new technological solution. So the, the benefit, the iterative virtuous circle benefit then being that the solution itself can then become part of the firm's management information and an input into the governance and decision making. You, you have to make the, the solutions work for you in that way as well. Trust the output and then you can build on that output to help future decision making, future strategic decisions. Um, come to the end of the five key things. So we're on to the takeaways with compliance officers. And I would just pick up one of the points Mike made in that last section is about board capacity and capability. Now, things have been moving so fast. I mean, you know, take your pick. It is all moving very quickly. There is a huge amount of regulatory change. There's a huge amount of digital transformation. You still need to concentrate on culture and conduct risk. Um, there is an awful lot going on, and that puts it mildly. So I would suggest one of the things for compliance officers to think about at the, if you like, the, the umbrella helicopter level is the need for a skills gap analysis. And obviously that would apply to the compliance function. Of course it would. But particularly, I think, undertake a skills gap analysis at the board level. 
you may well need to refresh your board in the sense you might need another non-executive director. You may need to implement a training programme. And to pick up on um, one of my points of emphasis earlier is firms by and large do much better when they have the appropriate skill sets in-house. I mean, of course, you can hire consultants and of course you can, you know, deal with third parties. But by and large, the firms that truly can move slickly and at speed have the skills in-house. So a skills gap analysis, I would suggest at the board level, is not the worst idea for 2022. Mike, takeaways for compliance officers? So my one's more around the firm's risk framework. And I think it's important that uh, risk compliance officers uh, make sure that uh, these risks that we've been chatting about are, um, are sufficiently plugged in to their their, their their risk framework. So there is a number of, of, of components to a risk framework. I'm not going to go into, go into them all here, some of which I've already mentioned. Um, but the risk framework forms an important part of corporate governance within a firm. And, and these um, operational and conduct risks need to be considered by the board in, in uh, holistically and in line with 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 the with uh, with other risks that the firms face, and so from a, from a risk framework perspective, what that does then is it gives the board uh, some assurance that these risks that they are discussing are being managed in the correct ways. So, for example, I would expect um, uh, the risks that we've chatted about today to to be included in in some form in the firm's risk appetite. Um, so that um, 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 so that the firm can can gain an understanding of how um, of how much they are prepared risk they are prepared to accept in these areas, and from an operational risk perspective, and we are talking about op- largely operational risks here. You know, to set a, a, an operational risk appetite is usually a mixture of scenario analysis, stress testing. And the application of previous performance, um, both by the firm and by the in the wider sector, um, 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 of, you know, of, of these risks, um, of um, I would expect to see um, uh, firms having policies um, um, around uh, th- these issues, signed off by the board, and and, and monitored um, uh, uh, frequently. I think, and I mentioned risk taxonomies before, but uh, again. I would expect uh, the operational and conduct risk taxonomies to have these these um, these high level uh, risks included within them, and then the process of identification, assessments, monitoring, and reporting, which all risk managers will know, the process of that then to pick up um, on these risks. So the identification of technological risks, the, the identification of operational resilience risks, the assessment of those risks. They're then monitoring of them and the reporting of them, and I guess an an area is the is is gaining corrective action where uh, controls are, are seen to be uh, to be insufficient. So I suppose my takeaway here is identifying the risks is great, and these are absolutely um, spot on risks. But they need to be plugged into the firm's risk management uh, risk management framework to be able to manage them appropriately. Brilliant. Thank you as ever, Mike, very much indeed. And thank you for listening to this episode of Compliance Clarified. As ever, we hope you found it both interesting and useful. Now, for the episode notes, I'll include a link to the five key risks piece itself. 
I'll also include links to a couple of our special reports. So the one on ESG and the fast moving challenges, and then also fintech, regtech, and the role of compliance in 2022. Our Cost of compliance survey for 2022 is open, so I'll include a link to that too. And as ever, I'll include a link for further information on Thomson Reuters regulatory intelligence itself. Last but not least, very much appreciate it could take the time to review the podcast. And please do let us know any suggestions for future topics. Thanks again for listening. Compliance Clarified, a podcast by Thomson Reuters regulatory intelligence.